I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I've preached a lot of All Saints sermons here at All Saints, and um, in thinking of what I'd like to say this year, um, I have to presume that you've heard all my other sermons, so I'm going to give you the bullet points so that we know where we're starting from and where we want to go. And uh, where I want to start from is, of course, um, St. Paul's use of the word hagioi um, to refer to the, the Christians that he was writing to in Corinth or in Ephesus or wherever. He said, to the hagioi who live in Corinth, Ephesus, and so on. And the hagioi are the, the holy ones, the blessed ones, which ended up being translated as the saints, the, the sanctus, um, the, the, those people. And that word that Paul used to refer to all the Christians became sort of reserved in the medieval period to the great ones. So we have the saints who get churches named after them, and they're saint this and saint that, and they're the amazing ones, and and all of a sudden the regular Christian became a not saint. We're just ordinary, and the saints are the amazing ones. So sermon number one is actually we are all the saints. We are all blessed. We are all um, icons to the world. We are all uh, people who embody uh, the Christ's journey, practice the faith, and um, are, um, are in that relationship with God, uh, the same relationship that the saints are. So taking that as a baseline, I now want to talk about the medieval understanding of the saints being the great ones. And I'm, I'm more partial to that understanding now, um, particularly because of my uh, growth and exploration as a musician in recent years. And um, I came back to music in my midlife after having been a promising young lad. And I was told, as many young lads are told, you could do anything you want. And I believed them. Um, And so I thought if I wanted to be a world-famous musician, I could do that. Well, I was going to do something else. And I felt called to the ministry, and I was going to do that. And my youthful, prideful self interpreted those callings in very similar ways, which really was all about me. You know, move over Jesus, here I come. Uh, like many seminarians. Um, But that was no different than if I had been a musician and I would say, move over, here I come, I'm going to claim the stage and be a great guitarist or whatever I was going to be. And it was all about me. And and also there was that that Dunning-Kruger problem. And I don't know if you're familiar with that phrase, but uh, the Dunning-Kruger syndrome, it's not really a syndrome, it's really an issue. Uh, It's a bunch of two psychologists that basically identified that in any field of skill or excellence, you have to have a certain degree of competence to know that you're incompetent. Below a certain level of competence, you have no idea how terrible you are at the thing that you think you're awesome at. Um, And and this is a Dunning-Kruger issue, um, and teenagers have it, you know, forever. I could do anything. You can't tell me what to do. I know everything. You know nothing. And, and of course, they don't know what they don't know. And, and on the other side of adulthood and wisdom, we know what we don't know. And so my joke in middle life, in, in early midlife when my kids were teenagers, is that the one point on which we both agree is that I know nothing. Because I was old enough to realize that I wasn't as smart as I thought I was And uh, they were too young to realize that they're not as smart as they think they are. And so that Dunning-Kruger problem um, really uh, 
came uh, home to me as a musician when I got back into music, and I wasn't as good as I thought I was. And actually, as I got better as a musician, getting back into it, really practicing seriously, learning how to record and, and track and, and mix and all the things that I've loved to do and I've gotten better at, I now know more about it, which means I know the difference between what I can do and what the really great ones can do. And so uh, even as a guitar player, why I do have some skill, I'm a good guitar player, but I am not great, and I can see greatness from here. I know what greatness is like, and I know that I cannot do that. And I now think in terms of bandwidth, like computers, where if you're, if you're a 486, you can do a lot of stuff, but there's some stuff you can't do. You need a new generation of chip to do the new things. And me compared to, I don't know if you know who this is, but Jacob Collier, a 20-year-old savant, um, he has more bandwidth in his mind about processing music than I will ever have. He was born with it, and he's, he's uh, worked at it. He's got the whole package of the environment where he was able to, to develop his skill, but he had the natural skill to start with, and he had a level of natural skill that I will never have. And so... Uh, when I discovered this as a player and as a, as a music writer and all the rest of it, one of the th as, as that youthful Dunning-Kruger syndrome melted away in the reality of my own limitations, um, the immediate response was, that's it, I'm burning all of my equipment. There's no point in making any music because I will never make anything as good as my heroes, as the ones that have, have uh, really touched me and moved me to tears, the great music that has, you know, uh, uh, is one of the best things in life. So what's the point? Why even bother? And it took me a while to say, well, that's true that I will never make music that brilliant or that good or whatever, but that actually doesn't mean that the music that I can make has no value. I can make music that I like and that other people like, and the act of creating music in a community is a value in itself, and that's actually better at some level than hearing an amazing recording of somebody amazing doing an amazing thing. And we're going through that transition right now in this service where we've had the amazing musicians doing the amazing things in a recording, and here it's us again with our humble offering, which is nonetheless worth making. It's still worth doing. And in this place and at this time, this is a better thing than hitting play on an amazing recording. Now, I'm talking about the saints. I'm talking about the great saints and the fact that the medievals were not wrong in saying there is a, an echelon of sainthood that seems to be head and shoulders above the rest of us. And they do need to be celebrated and remembered. And so in the same way that I'll never play the guitar the way that my guitar heroes play, um, and I'll never change the way music was written the way Bach and Beethoven did, there are the Bachs and the Beethovens of the Christian world. And I have a few of my favorites. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Benedict and Francis and, of course, good old Paul from the Bible, um, who I know through their writings and who seem to have more bandwidth than me. And so, like I would do at the feet of a master guitarist, I would sit at their feet and hope to learn a little bit of what they know so that I could be better at the kind of music I want to make. And so I sit at Paul's feet, I sit at Benedict's feet, I sit at Francis's feet, and learn a little bit more about what it means to have a Christian practice and live in a Christian way. I will never be as good as them. 
I will, I, I will never have the genius, the spiritual genius that they had. But at the same time, that doesn't negate the value of my own journey in my own place in my own time. So I don't need to burn my guitars, spiritually speaking. I can make the music that I make. And the other uh, lovely thing about this analogy for me is that the, um, the, the, the Jesus of guitar for me is a guy named Alan Holdsworth. Um, and Alan himself got really sick of all the guitarists trying to imitate the way he played. And he said, I'm just tired of it. I mean, they're trying to be me. Why are they bothering? They should learn to be themselves, find their own musical voice, play the guitar the way they want to play it. And that makes all of music better. We don't need lots of imitations of me out there. I'm already doing this. And this is what I do. And this is who I am. It comes from who I am. So don't try to be who I am. Be who you are. And again, like with sainthood, I don't need to be Paul. I don't need to be Benedict. I don't need to be Francis. They are who they are. And their greatness comes from being who they are. The, the learning from them is not, is not only the great things that, about them, but it's also learning to listen to the Holy Spirit in my own journey and find out what is authentically me. Because that is where... I live out my own sainthood in that ordinary, everyday, here and now way. I'm never going to be a Benedict. I'm never going to be a Francis. But I can be a Chris, and I can be a good one. And if I'm listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit in my life, in my time, with whoever this is, all my warts and limitations, that can still be a work of God, and I can still be Jesus in me for whoever I am around and with and near. And thus it is for all of us. Um, we just need to be us. And when we're authentically us, we find our own spiritual voice in the same way that an artist finds their own artistic voice. And, in, and the, the, um, the analogy is, is quite lovely because I'm convinced that music is a work of the Holy Spirit. It is an act of creativity. It's made in the image of God. We are creators as God is a creator. It all works together quite magically. Um, but there is a music to the art of living. And as we live our life through our journey, wherever the journey takes us, it is like making a melody. And we need to find our melody, which comes from God. Now, one last thought. The, th the other thing that made the saints great, and this is the hard thing, and this is another good Dunning-Kruger problem, um, is that the movement of the Christian journey is the movement of crucifixion and resurrection. There is a dying and rising that is the essential thing about, about Christianity, which means there is a cross-carrying element to the Christian faith, no matter how you slice it. There is no authentic Christian faith without suffering. And so we look at the great saints, and they all suffered for their faith. And some, uh, some of the saints who were martyred in the same way that I look at my great guitarists and say, I could never do that, I look at the great martyrs and say, I don't know if I could ever do that. Could I ever die for my faith? If it became a capital offense to profess the faith that I hold dear, would I hold, hold it um, and be willing to lose my life over it? Um, I, I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe not. I doubt it at this point, the way I feel. I feel like, oh, I'm not that, I'm not that good. Um, but that act of carrying the cross is 
built into the Christian way, and we can't escape it. And my, my understanding from this place in life, where it's a lot less about the crown and a lot more about the cross, um, that it, it is, is that you don't choose the cross. Again, from my teenage, you know, I, I want to be a great guitarist or maybe a great saint, I don't know which, um, the, what I thought about being a great saint was how much people would be amazed at how, how great I was. And it, and it had nothing to do with what actually made the saints great, which was the willingness to suffer and die for what they believed in, for the work of God. At 56, I'm much more aware of when you're committed to the work of God, the, um, the opposition you encounter, when, when you care about justice and, and the well-being of your fellow human being, there are vested interests who don't and who will actually oppose you. And if you want to be a journalist in a dangerous country, if you want to be someone that works for the well-being of all people, if you want to say, you know, there's a problem between the rich and the poor in the Western world and we need to do something about it, there is no end of opposition, and it could, in fact, cost you your life. Um, that This is reality. And the, the willingness to carry that cross is not so much because you say, okay, that's it, I'm going to die now, but... It's more about, I don't care whether I live or I die, because this is too important. And it's that movement that puts you into that journey of the cross, where it's not, it's not a choosing of the cross because it's awesome, uh, or because it's, you know, the amount of suffering is what Jesus wants you to do. Uh, you know, you don't need to bang nails through your hands to prove what a great Christian you are. But it's just that when you when you are wholeheartedly committed to the way of Jesus, to the way of loving your neighbor as yourself and loving God above all others, there will be pain, there will be suffering. And, and, you, and, and in fact, the price is worth paying. And that's the other message of All Saints Sunday because the iconography of the saints is the cross and the crown. And the two go together. You can't get the crown without the cross uh, and you can't endure the cross without receiving the crown. They go together. So for us in our Christian walk and our Christian practice, on this All Saints Day, we are all the saints. We all need to make the melody that we were called to make, however unique or humble that may be. There will be an element of suffering in it. And that element of suffering is inescapable, but it is part of the holy, redemptive journey of Christ active in our lives and in our community. And in the end, the fundamental emphasis of today's readings with the resurrection of Lazarus, with the discussion of the revelation and the end times and the glories to come, um, is that when you can't see past the cross, remind yourself that there is always the crown. There are other people who have paid a price at least as great as we have, if not much greater, and they receive the crown at the end, as will we. And I would also add the, the, the last point, I promise, that, um, that there's some of the crown that is accessible while we are on the journey. That, that at some point, if you were offered the choice of saying, well, there's no point in trying to be good and trying to make the world a better place and making sacrifices for the sake of the greater good or the environment or whatever it is that we want to do and say, I'm just going to live for me now. And, and you, when you do that thought experiment, you go, actually, I can't do that. I, I just couldn't. I don't know how, and it would actually be fundamentally empty and vacuous and uh, depressing if all I'm living for is my own happiness and my own welfare and my own appetites. That is a hell of its own kind. 
And so at some level, the, the, the crown is accessible to us even on the journey itself. Something always waits ahead of us, yes. Um, and, but even as we go through this journey with our Christian practice and our Christian walk, with all the suffering that it may entail, we do have a foretaste of the glory in the love that we give and receive in our relationships here on earth, in the satisfaction we receive when we do create something of value, uh, when we make a difference in somebody else's life. All of these things are, uh, are, are that foretaste of the banquet that awaits us in its fullness on the other side of the grave. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.